Metamore Studios proudly presents Metamore City, Season 2, a podcast series written and performed by Chris Lester. For show notes and author contact information, please visit metamorecity.com. Featuring the vocal talents of Michael Spence, Genevieve Seven, Indiana Jim, Danae Winters. These stories may contain adult language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Whispers in the Wood, Episode 1. Whispers in the Wood by Chris Lester October 27th 1999, Christos Reckoning. A single light fell on center stage, and the crowd fell silent as the violinist emerged from the shadows and took his seat. He was a gaunt, frail-looking wisp of a man, with sallow skin and stringy blonde hair that fell in long, natty tangles around his bestubbled face. His large, dark eyes sat in deep, hollowed sockets, his prominent brow veiling them in shadow. His shabby tweed suit was patched at the elbows, and his brown leather shoes were scuffed and coming apart at the seams. Near the back of the crowded auditorium, Abby Preston watched intently, taking in both the man and the reactions of the crowd. She herself attracted no notice, a young woman of average height, with drab clothes, brown hair, and unremarkable features. She blended easily into the crowd. The subtle telepathic veil she drew around herself further discouraged close examination, marking her in the minds of all who saw her as utterly unimportant. It was not invisibility, but in many ways, it was better. Abby watched the crowd as the violinist stepped into the light. The newcomers were easy to spot as they fidgeted in their seats and cast uneasy glances at their companions. This was not what they had been expecting. Abby could hardly blame them. There were street musicians in the square who cut a more impressive figure than the poor wretch before them. Some of them looked toward the exit or glanced at their watches. Those who had been here before paid them no mind, their eyes fixed on the stage in rapt attention. And beyond them, in the darkest shadows of the room, Abby could see others watching. Silent, wispy figures, there and not there, they gathered around the auditorium like moths around a flame. These shades were aware of Abby in a way that their living counterparts were not, but at the moment their focus was wholly on the violinist and the instrument he held. The man on the stage cleared his throat and moved the microphone closer to his face. His voice had a worn, ragged edge that matched well with his appearance. Good evening, he said, smiling briefly at the crowd. The effect was hideous, milk-white skin pulled taut over the cadaverous face. For those of you who are new here, I apologize if my appearance is a bit unusual. But regardless of what you may have been told, you didn't come here to see me. You didn't even come here to hear me. You came for her. He held up the violin before the crowd. In contrast to the man who held it, The instrument had obviously been treated with exquisite care. It was clearly old, 
but its blood-red varnish gleamed under the spotlight, and not a speck of dirt could be seen upon its surface. Two months ago, Abby might not have appreciated the care and skill that had gone into its craftsmanship. She knew better now. This violin is over 400 years old. The violinist's eyes were alight with passion, like a man speaking of his beloved. In her long life, she has passed through many hands, both fair and foul. Some of the greatest musicians in history have drawn the bow across her ancient strings, bringing forth melodies to make the angels of heaven weep. I know these things because she has told me. Someone in the audience made a scoffing noise. Those around him hushed him forcefully. The man on the stage turned his eyes in the direction of the sound, though Abby knew he couldn't see the doubter's face through the glare of the spotlight. Ah, a skeptic, he said, smiling thinly. Good sir, I do not blame you. I was once such as you myself, a scholar, a man of reason. And surely reason tells us that a mere object, a made thing of wood and metal, cannot speak. The man's eyes widened with a fanatic's gleam as he ran a caressing hand over the instrument. But I will tell you a true thing, my friend. This fair lady remembers her history, and she shares it with those who have the ears to listen. The man raised the violin under his chin, placed the bow across the strings, and closed his eyes. For a moment his lips moved silently, as if in prayer. Then, with sure, steady movements, he began to play. The song was like nothing Abby had heard anywhere else. The notes were clear, sweet, and perfect, with a purity of tone that not one violin in ten thousand could produce. But the song was more than that. The song was pain, and loss, and sorrow, an anthem of unrelenting grief for which no words could be sufficient. In its strains, Abby heard the cry of the mother clutching her lifeless child, of the young woman whose husband never returned from war, of the father watching his son die of cancer, of the old man weeping at his wife's grave. It was the wordless cry of every man, woman, and child who had ever shaken a fist at the uncaring universe, every stricken heart that had demanded an answer to the question, why, and was left unsatisfied. When the song finally, mercifully ended, not a dry eye remained in the darkened hall. The shades had moved in among the mortals, unseen by all but Abby herself, and crowded close to the stage, heedless of all but the thing that called to them. Many of the mortals in the audience were sobbing openly. Those newcomers who still retained any sense of their surroundings were staring up at the man, their eyes wide with awe and a silent plea for understanding. The man gave it to them. I am not the master of this instrument. The lady is her own mistress. I am only the channel through which she speaks. What you have heard tonight, what you will continue to hear, is not a performance, but a seance. In my unworthy hands, she will tell you her story. Sorrow, pain, loss, truth, and beauty. This is not the work of one man. It is the story of all men, of all people, everywhere, 
throughout her long history, which means, of course, that it is also your story and mine. He held up the violin once more. In the uncertain play of light and shadow, faces seemed to appear and vanish in the blood-red surface of the wood. Her name is Threnody, and she has come to make you free. The man played for little more than an hour in total, but none who listened would have said that it was too little. In his weathered hands, Threnody gave voice to each one's private pain, drawing it forth in ways that could not be suppressed or denied. Three times the man stopped and sat down on the stage, cradling Threnody in his arms while members of the audience came forward to share the stories that she had spoken to them in her music. There was the man who had lost his wife to a street thug's bullet. There, the woman whose daughter had been struck by a skimmer. There, the boy whose mother had committed suicide. It was as if the instrument had known their pain and sung it back to them, and in hearing it they found release. The songs told them that some force, some presence greater than themselves, had heard their pain and answered it. Though they still wept, the universe wept with them and so they were no longer alone. The shades, meanwhile, had drawn closer to Threnody with each song the man played. By the end of the third piece, they had mounted the stage and swirled around him like a shadowy, unseen whirlwind. Whenever a shade actually touched the instrument, it vanished, so swiftly and silently that Abby could not say where it had gone or what had become of it. By the end of the concert, not one remained. As the mortal listeners filed out of the dingy, first-level music hall, the change in the crowd was remarkable. People who had been strangers when they entered now embraced each other and wiped away one another's tears. Street-level hoods and disaffected teens from the upper levels exchanged friendly farewells, all differences of race and class forgotten. Men in business suits emptied their wallets to help homeless people whom they wouldn't have given a second glance two hours before. Abby moved silently through the midst of that diverse crowd, slipping away unseen onto a shadowed side street. She followed the narrow skyway into one of the adjacent towers. A large black skimmer waited for her in a hidden alcove just inside the gate. The doors opened for her and she slid into the back seat. Radiant blue eyes glittered at her from the space beside her. Report. There's definitely something weird going on. Psychometry, maybe? It's hard to tell. The energies in that room were like nothing I've felt before. The eyes narrowed. I was hoping for more, Miss Preston. Abby threw up her hands in exasperation. What do you want me to say, Janus? That he's a demon? A monster? Something you and a lemisil can solve with a quick decapitation? The corner of Janus's lip quirked upward. If I believed that, I wouldn't have called you. Well, he isn't a teep either. He might be an esper, but if so, his power's passive. It doesn't explain what happens to people when he plays that thing. And no record of magical talent either, Janus mused. Which brings us back to the violin itself. I wasn't able to get close enough to touch it, Abby said, a little apologetically. He's very protective of it, which I guess I can understand. 
Were you able to detect any malevolence from the instrument? No, but that's not saying much, though. My ESP only works at really close range, and I can't read something's mind if it isn't alive. She shook her head. For what it's worth, I don't think the guy is evil. Or crazy. The people who left there seemed healed somehow by what he did. Janus Starson quirked an eyebrow. Miss Preston, the Lothanasi have been tracking Isaac Wells across the Empire for the last seven months. At every new moon, someone who has heard his music dies under mysterious circumstances, sometimes more than one. Shortly after that, Wells moves on to a new location, where the same thing happens again. His eyes hardened. This man is in my territory now. The new moon is in three days. We need to find out how he is connected to these deaths and put a stop to them before it happens again. Believe me, I agree with you. I just don't think that Wells is the key to what's happening. Janus looked down at Alemisil, the holy sword that rested beside him in the space between the seats. He ran his hand over the sheath, and a dim red glow came from within as the elven runes on the blade responded to his touch. Then find the key for me, Miss Preston. Because if we don't find another way to stop it, then three days from now I'll have to destroy the instrument and probably kill Wells. It's the only way to be sure. His eyes met Abby's, and for a moment she saw the pain in them, the burden that came with being entrusted with the power of life and death. Find another solution, Miss Preston. For his sake, and for mine. October 28th. It didn't take long for Abby to locate the boarding house where Wells was staying. Threnody's music had left a trail of psychic effects on the whole surrounding neighborhood, and like ripples in a pond, Abby could follow them back to their source. It must have been a luxury home a hundred years ago, but as the first level declined, it had apparently been divided up into ever smaller rental units to serve the needs of the market. It was a place of long-faded elegance, like an old soldier who still wears the uniform with pride in spite of his own decrepitude. Abby thought it suited him well. The violinist was not playing when she approached the door to his room, a fact for which Abby was grateful. Her own emotions were still raw from the night before. She reached out for his mind and made sure he was awake before she knocked on the door. He did not respond immediately, though the wave of anxiety she felt told Abby that he had heard her. After a moment, she knocked again and asked tentatively, Dr. Wells? Now he came over to the other side of the door, moving with the cautious steps of a mouse in a house full of cats. She felt his surprise and curiosity as he looked through the peephole and saw her on the other side. After a moment's indecision, he opened the door. If possible, he looked even more horrible than he had the night before. Dark, puffy bags swelled under his eyes, and his rumpled pajamas were stained and threadbare. He reeked of stale sweat and bad gin. Yes? His voice was hoarse and quavered, as though from long disuse. Abby bowed to him in greeting. Dr. Wells, may I speak with you? I'm sorry to disturb you, but it's urgent, and I think you might be the only one who can help me. At that, he stood up a bit straighter. Abby had been betting that a man of his generation would have a strong belief in the ideals of chivalry. It looked like he wasn't going to disappoint. Wells stood aside, holding the door open for her. Of course. Please, 
Come in, child. Have a seat while I... while I make myself a bit more presentable. Abby did as he asked, perching on the edge of an overstuffed sofa and looking around the room. The furnishings were serviceable, but personal effects were sparse, clearly showing that this was a man who had traveled much and kept little to call his own. Threnody held pride of place, resting on a stand in one corner of the room. The violin's battered case sat beside the stand, along with the sordid implements that Abby supposed must be used to care for the instrument. A dozen or so books lined the shelves, the titles written in five or six different languages. All of them were bound in leather and looked far older than the man himself. The sound of running water came from the little bathroom on the far side of the kitchen-cum-dining area. Abby sent a tendril of thought in that direction, sensing the mixture of fear, suspicion, and shame that swirled through his mind. Holding all of them at bay was a tenuous alliance of personal honor and professional pride. If I can help this girl, I will. She stole a glance at the violin. What were the odds that she could ask something useful from it while Wells was preoccupied? A brief touch, a scan with her talent, and she might learn everything they needed to know. Or she might not. The spiritual entities to which her ESP was attuned were always weaker in daylight, and if he caught her, the betrayal of his trust would ruin any chance of gaining his help voluntarily. Besides, if it were something simple, the Lightbringers probably would have discovered it on their own. She stayed in her seat. He emerged from the bathroom a few minutes later, freshly shaved and smelling noticeably better. He wore a sweater of faded green and a surprisingly modern pair of khakis. His long hair, which in this light she could see was heavily streaked with gray, was pulled back into a ponytail. He smiled courteously at her. May I offer you some tea, Miss... Preston, Abby said. And yes, tea would be wonderful, thank you. The man busied himself in the kitchen for a few minutes more, obviously pleased at the opportunity to play host and more than a little surprised at himself for feeling that way. He brought out the teapot on a battered serving tray, with two chipped mugs, a small bowl of sugar, and a little pitcher of cream. Abby's surprise must have shown on her face. Wells smiled. A proper tea service is one of the things that separates us from the barbarians, my dear. Every great civilization throughout history has had a tea ritual of one kind or another. By it we show our respect for the ancient customs of hospitality. He poured a cup for each of them, then gestured at Abby's. Cream? Sugar? Abby smiled, charmed by the man's peculiar brand of courtesy. Yes, please. He added cream and sugar to both of their cups, then waited for Abby to sip and nod her approval before taking a sip of his own. He settled back in his chair, peering at her over the top of his cup. Now then, Miss Preston. How may I be of service to you? Abby took another sip of her tea, then set it down, chewing her lip thoughtfully. Her request couldn't sound too rehearsed, or it would arouse suspicion. I was at the music hall last night. What you did with Threnody was amazing. He smiled, then acknowledged the compliment with a small nod. Thank you, my dear. As I said, though, I am only a channel. The lady does the rest. I remember. Abby said, nodding. I was wondering, though, what makes someone a channel? Would she play like that for anyone who held her? Or is there something special that made her choose you? The man's eyes grew distant, haunted. 
she does not sing in the same way for everyone. The last owner had no idea what he had. She'd been abused, neglected. He gave her to his ten-year-old son, if you can imagine. He looked at her, his dark eyes suddenly piercing in their intensity. I do not know why she has chosen me. I merely serve her calling to the best of my ability. Abby looked down at her teacup, averting her eyes from that discomfiting stare. This may sound a little crazy, but have any other objects talked to you? Told you things about themselves or the people who own them? Wells set down his cup and leaned forward, peering at her closely. This isn't about me, is it? You've experienced the phenomenon of which you speak. Abby made no effort to hide her surprise. Wells might not be a telepath, but he was obviously perceptive. I... yes. She looked down at her teacup again, turning it back and forth in her hands. I see shades sometimes. They're like impressions that people have left behind on the things or places that matter to them. It was the truth, but only a part of the truth. As for the rest of it, well, the Lightbringers paid her well for her silence. There were some things the world wasn't ready to know. Wells nodded soberly. The Earth remembers us long after we are gone. It is comforting, I think, to know that something in this world should recall our passing, even if men should not. Then you have experienced this before? The man looked down at his hands. He was silent for a long moment before speaking. Sometimes I have felt impressions about objects I have touched. Brief glimpses of some past life. A word, a scent, a scrap of memory without context. The old places of power bring out those feelings the most. Temples, summoning circles, druid groves. But nothing like what I have experienced with Threnody. She is... special. I'm not sure why. He shook his head. I'm sorry, Miss Preston. If you're looking for understanding of your gift, I fear I cannot help you. I do not even understand my own. It's okay. She reached across the table and gently touched his hand. He seemed surprised by the contact, but not displeased. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I think it helps, just knowing that we're not alone. He smiled up at her, genuine warmth filling his haggard face. Perhaps it does at that. Abby looked over at the violin, then back at Wells. Doctor, I was wondering, do you think that I could hold Threnody? Just for a few minutes? The smile drained from the man's face. A sudden terror sprang up in his aura, so strong that it nearly knocked Abby back in her seat. He took a moment to compose himself, then answered carefully. I'm afraid that won't be possible, Miss Preston. I'm terribly sorry, but the lady does not take kindly to strangers touching her. Abby blinked. What? Why? What happens? A sudden chill filled the room, turning their breath to fog in front of their faces. The morning sunlight streaming through the windows abruptly vanished, casting the room into shadow. Abby looked over at the violin once more. The darkness seemed to gather itself around the instrument, making that corner far darker than it had any reason to be. Something glinted in the blood-red surface of the wood, 
two brief pinpricks of light amidst the shadow, there and then gone. I think you should go now, Miss Preston. Abby was more than willing to oblige. Isaac sat on the sofa, threnody cradled in his hands. He closed his eyes and stroked the surface of the wood gently, murmuring reassurance. It's all right. She meant no harm. She would have touched us. She She would have put her filthy hands all over us. But she didn't. She would have done as I asked. She would have tried to deceive you. Tried to turn you against us. That's what they do. That's what they all do. She seemed a very proper young lady to me. I wish you hadn't made me send her away. They're the worst kind. They're the ones who are hiding the most. Liars and backstabbers, the lot of them. So you've said. Still, I do wish you might reconsider. The work we do is important, but it's very lonely sometimes. A whisper of wind passed through the room, carrying the scents of jasmine and cinnamon. The violin shook in his hands, the strings quivering dissonantly. Isaac did not open his eyes, but he felt the warmth of another body take shape on the couch beside him. A hand covered Threnody's strings and silenced them. My poor Isaac. A warm breath of cinnamon in his ear. Long, slender fingers ran down the back of his neck and came to rest on his shoulder. So faithful have you been in serving my needs that I have forgotten your own. Isaac squeezed his eyes shut even more tightly. I... I'm sorry, my lady. I shouldn't complain. I... A gentle finger touched his lips. I am not angry, nor do I wish to be unkind. The hand that rested on the violin carefully took it away from him. Isaac heard it settle into the display stand in the corner of the room. It let out another dissonant chord and fell silent. Then she returned, her lithe body straddling his lap. Deft fingers opened his shirt. His lips trailed the line of kisses over his mouth, his cheek, his neck. Each touch of her skin on his was blissful agony, fire and ice and honey. He felt his own arousal rising, and the strings of the violin quivered softly. I... I shouldn't. But he made no move to stop her as she loosened his belt and pulled down his pants and underwear. Nonsense. Bare flesh settled against his, and the touch was electric. He felt himself go rigid instantly. You are my maestro, my chosen one. Nothing I can give is too good for you. He felt his control slipping away. He knew the price that this time of bliss would carry, but he no longer cared. He reached up and ran his gnarled hands over her warm, supple form, reveling in the touch. He ran his fingers through long, silky hair and drew her head down to him, kissing her passionately. Sharp canines nipped at his tongue, and the pain brought with it a new wave of pleasure. With a growl of desire, she raised her hips and impaled herself upon him. Say it, she whispered, as agony and ecstasy ran together in his perceptions. A clawed hand ran down his chest, slicing the flesh in long ribbons. 
A forked tongue snaked out and lapped up the blood, leaving trails of ice to follow the fire. You are my lady. And have you a need for any other? Is there any other who can give you what I give you? She ground her hips against him to emphasize the point. No, he gasped. You are my life, my song, my all. She kissed him again, and he tasted his own blood on her lips. And so it shall ever be. For an hour she stayed with him, visiting such delights and tortures upon his body as he could scarcely have imagined in his youth. Through it all he reveled in her scent, her touch, the melody of her voice. At no point did he open his eyes. Some things man was not worthy to look upon, and there was beauty that was too terrible to see. You've been listening to episode 42 of the Metamore City podcast, written and performed by Chris Lester. This episode featured the voice talents of Michael Spence as Isaac Wells, Jennifer Seven as Abby Preston, Indiana Jim as Janus Starson, and Danae Winters as the Unseen Lover. Some music provided by David Beard at davidbeardmusic.com, used with permission. Violin music provided by PC Herring. Other music and sound effects provided by Digital Juice at digitaljuice.com, SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, and the Free Sound Project at freesound.org. This audio adaptation of Whispers in the Wood was recorded and mixed at Metamore Studios in Berkeley, California. The story and recording are both copyright 2009 by Chris Lester. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.5 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City Podcast, right after these messages. We're going back to Luna to finish the job. The lunar revolution is faltering. The Persians and the Americans are about to make life very uncomfortable and dangerous out here, Mr. Hartman. There is a traitor in the resistance. We're going to push Mongoose down into those tunnels and find our moles. And we're going to shut them down. But their fate might rest with a fugitive. No way you get away now, you son of a bitch. And his name is Joss Kyle. Choose your side. Plant your flag and join the resistance if you can decide who you really are. From the mind of J. Daniel Sawyer, Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, November 11th, The War Begins at www.jdsawyer.net. Free Will and Other Compulsions. It isn't whether you win or lose, but can you survive the game? The Fey world is lost. We have spun beyond the reach of the human world, but some chose to stay. Lost, magical souls adrift in a world of the future. And yet now, 
As the darkness approaches, you must rely on the orphans we left behind to save your world. Step back into the world of magic and find out what happens when the future and the Fae collide. Digital Magic, sequel to the award-winning Chasing the Bard, begins on November 11th, 2009. Subscribe at digitalmagicnovel.com and prepare for magic. Hi, this is T. Morris of Podcasting for Dummies, The Moravi Saga, and The Biddlebub Baddings Mysteries. Restock your holy water, check your talismans, and keep it on the bright side. You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. And now your host, Chris Lester. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Metamore City Podcast. I am so jazzed that we are finally here. It was a long road, and we've still got a long road ahead of us, but we made it to 11.11.09, Podcaster Triple Threat. Be sure to check out the first episodes of Digital Magic at digitalmagicnovel.com by Philippa Ballantyne, and the first chapter of Free Will and Other Compulsions at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. I gotta tell you, a big part of the reason why I'm so excited about Triple Thread is because I want to hear what Dan and Pip have been up to over the last few months. I am so excited to finally hear their stuff, so check it out. It's gonna be awesome. At 9.30pm Eastern Time, PG Holyfield is gonna be doing a live reading of Pip's story, Love and Fire which she wrote for his Tales of the Children anthology. You can find that at stickum.com, that's S-T-I-C-K-A-M dot com slash P-G Holyfield. I'm going to try and stop in later if I can, but definitely drop in and give some support to P-G and Pip. They're going to be doing a question and answer after the reading. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for the Podcaster Triple Threat Launchcast, At 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Dan Sawyer and Pip Ballantyne are going to be hosting a live lunchcast on TalkShoe. That's at TalkShoe.com. I will be joining them a little bit later, probably around 7.30 or 8 o'clock. We're going to be giving some prizes away, doing some trivia challenges, and probably giving you some sneak peeks about the upcoming seasons of our respective shows. So if you're available at that time, please call in and join the fun. I will be the special guest at Oricon 31 up in Portland, Oregon. That's going to be held on November 27th through the 29th. I'll be appearing on panels about blending genres, creating compelling villains, and tips for game masters in pen and paper role-playing games. If you're anywhere in the Pacific Northwest during that time and you can make it out to the con, I'd love to see you there. I'm sure that we'll be doing some sort of pub crawl with the local Portland podcasting fans. Our next episode will be on Wednesday, November 25th. Also, keep an eye out for some special episodes coming up in the feed. We've still got a lot of stories left from the Metamore City Interregnum that I didn't get a chance to run over the course of the summer, so look for those in future updates. If you'd like to send in your feedback on this episode, you can use our voicemail line, which is 206-202-8530. That's 206-202-8530. 
The first person to call in with some feedback on the new season will win a copy of J.C. Hutchins' Seventh Son Book One Descent. You can also send in email feedback at feedback at metamorecity.com. Can't wait to hear what you guys think of the new season. If you think this episode was hot, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's it for now, folks. I'm going to get out of here. Until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Metamore War Memorial Auditorium. I'm Ike Wells, and we are going to party like it's 1999! Greetings, Paulette. Welcome to Metamore City Season 2. Doom, 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 doom. Were you able to detect any malevolence? Blah. Malevolence, malevolence, malevolence. She does not seem to sing. She does. The words. <laughs> and growl of desire. Okay. <sighs> Make it a little fiercer than that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm gonna work on the ground with desire thing. Wow. <laughs> and so it shall ever be. Yeah, bitch.